I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And normally we're the hosts of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, a weekly walk through the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. However, this is an off week, and that means that you're listening to Hawk Talk, where we talk hawks. Or, you know, the equivalent. Now, as we say at the beginning of all of our Hawk Talk episodes... This is not a representative episode of the show. This is unedited. The audio quality is just not great because it's going through Skype. Uh, it's not really about continuity. So if this is your first episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, I mean, you could start here, but I'd recommend starting with one of the episodes that's actually an episode. Either way, we strongly request that you don't judge us based on this limited slice of content. Indeed. So, in this episode of Hawk Talk, today's Hawks are television programs yeah we had a lot of really good response when we did an episode of hawk talk a while back about books we grew up on so we figured we would uh continue that trend and we had some requests from listeners and talk about the tv we grew up on so this is going to be a slightly asymmetrical episode because of that because miles grew up on tv much much more than i did we've seen a lot of the same shows at this point but for me watching those was largely playing catch up in college and later yeah, because I, I watched a whole lot of kid shows when I was a kid. I was a, a fervent follower of the religion of sugary cereal and cartoons on Saturday mornings. Well, not sugary cereal. My parents didn't let me have that, but I always wanted it. Uh, but yeah, Jay, you didn't really have that experience. Like you watched some stuff as a kid, but not really your typical kid stuff, right? Yeah, I watched TV with my parents. So um, I watched the news a lot and uh, we would occasionally like have shows that we picked up as a family. We watched parts of a couple Star Trek series that way. We watched a bunch of Third Rock from the Sun, a bunch of Get Smart. I'm trying to think of what else. I watched Clarissa Explains It All fairly religiously. I think that was mostly on my own or with my dad. But again, never really saw any of those in in completion. So my my TV experience as a as a kid was was really haphazard, even even when it was consistent and yeah, and involved, at least when I was very young, very, very little actual kids programming that wasn't like Reading Rainbow and Sesame Street. I mean, to be fair, Reading Rainbow and Sesame Street are excellent. They are, as is Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. One of the neat things about the era of YouTube has been rediscovering a lot of the really amazing, amazing public television programming that existed when we were very, very young, when we were young kids and toddlers. And the general Mr. Rogers, you know, recognition renaissance has been really nice to watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, my fiance Anna and I went to see Won't You Be My Neighbor, the not the Tom Hanks Mr. Rogers movie, but the documentary that came out a while before. And oh, boy, howdy. I have never seen that many adults in one movie theater simultaneously struggling not to cry loudly. You know, and if Mr. Rogers were there, he would tell you that it's OK, too. He would, because he was one of the greatest humans ever to live, as near as I can tell. He was super excellent. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there's that. But yeah, in terms of later on, now you mentioned Clarissa Explains It All, which makes me think of The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which obviously we should talk about later in the episode, since that's an important show for our podcast, in terms of our podcast's origin. Yeah, it's definitely part of the not particularly secret origin of Jan Miles Explain the X-Men. Yeah, but I was thinking we could go kind of chronologically. So like you mentioned, I watched a lot more stuff. So I was thinking we could kind of go from very young Miles to less young Miles to, to chart the development of a tiny nerd. Does that sound good? Works for me. 
Okay, cool. So I started with a show called Masters of the Universe, aka He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I don't know why I did. I guess I was just like the right age, you know, four or five or whatever at the time it was out. And it was a bunch of muscly dudes with science fiction-y, medieval-y armor and weapons all fighting each other and nobody ever dying. So a lot of this stuff I was peripherally aware of when I was a kid because, you know, I had peers who showed up in He-Man t-shirts and stuff. And I remember that even as a preschooler, the name He-Man struck me as, as kind of beggaring belief. Yeah. Where did you stand on that? Oh, no, same page. Like, even as a kid, I'm like, why Why would you name him that? Like, the only other uh, context I had for the name He-Man was my grandparents talking about Little Rascals. And I think the Little Rascals characters were in the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And I'm like, I, I don't know that I want to be associated with this. I'm just here for the cool swords and skeleton guys and stuff. Shira made marginally more sense because it at least sounded like it could have been sort of a phonetic bastardization of a name like Shira. Right, exactly. If it was a direct parallel, she would be She-Woman, which, I don't know if that sounds worse or better than He-Man. It's certainly strange. They're both pretty bad. They're both pretty bad. But in retrospect, one thing that's kind of cool about that show slash action figure line slash whatever, the setting, it kind of reminds me of the role-playing game Exalted, in that it seems to have just been a bunch of people saying, okay, let's make a list of all the stuff we think is cool— and then let us take that entire list, not removing a single item, and somehow try to create a setting from it. It's just everything crammed together from all sorts of various uh, science fiction and fantasy and space opera and barbarian fiction and stuff like that. I think that your take on that is much, much more wide-eyed and much less cynical than mine, which is a similar, a lot of people sitting around a table saying, let's put all of these things together and not throw any of them out. But instead of genres, they're either toy ideas or ways to repurpose partially completed broken toys. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I think it can be both. I think you can have, like, enthusiasm and mercenary mercantile focus simultaneously. You know what I appreciate about the He-Man, She-Ra cosmology? What's that? I appreciate that She-Ra is unabashedly and unmitigatedly and canonically every bit as badass as He-Man, if not more so, and in fact has more powers than he does. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and also just in terms of what she has to face. Like, I'm always reminded of the old, I think it was a quote about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, how she did everything he did but backwards and in heels. Yeah, and on a planet occupied by an enemy force and having been raised in that one. Exactly, because, like, first He-Man was fighting Skeletor, and don't get me wrong, I love Skeletor, I did wear a Skeletor Halloween costume to go meet my dad at work one day when I was, like, five years old, but Skeletor was bumbling, you know? Have you ever considered, you know, reliving that experience as an adult? Because I feel like it would go over really well. I feel like it, it, it might. Um, I don't know, I mean, I've been, I've been working out a little, but I still don't have the physique of any He-Man characters, let alone Skeletor, the big blue muscly guy with the skull face. But the thing is, we're talking early 80s animation, and Skeletor wasn't drawn that well, so really, like, he looked like a padded muscle suit. That's a really good point. Okay, so maybe we can make this work. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, my dad's in Florida, and I'm in Oregon, and travel is um, uh, improbable these days, but in theory, someday that'll change. I mean, he's also retired. There are a lot of problems with my idea, but I'm not saying that doesn't mean we oughtn't pursue it. That sentence you just said made me so happy, Jay. I feel like that is a good uh, life philosophy. Or if not a wise life philosophy, still a, uh, a laudable life philosophy. It's definitely a driving principle behind talk talk as a general concept. 
<laughs> yes, yes, it is. Um, so that was He-Man. Uh, I, I grew out of He-Man, as one uh, does, and moved on to the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Now, of course, it was called the real Ghostbusters uh, instead of just Ghostbusters because there had been a previous Ghostbusters cartoon done by, I want to say, Filmation based on an old, old movie about these two guys and, like, a gorilla that caught ghosts. And they made a cartoon of that, too. Um, it was really strange. It confused the hell out of me as a kid. But the real Ghostbusters was the one based on, you know, the Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd uh, movie that I was in love with as a child. So that's one of a whole spate of cartoons that came out during that era based on movies, right? It was, yeah. Oh, oh, and I definitely want to talk about that. But, but, but while we're on the subject of the real Ghostbusters, it was really good. Like, Jay, do you remember when we uh, got together with some friends a number of Christmases ago and watched old Christmas cartoon specials and, like, the Ghostbusters one was awesome? Yeah, and they, they had to, they basically had to act through a Christmas carol but fake being all of the ghosts. It was great, yeah. Uh, that was written, I think that was written by J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, Straczynski did some writing for the Ghostbusters cartoon. Peter David did some writing for the Ghostbusters cartoon. Like, a lot of people who would be become luminaries in genre fiction and comics— and it it really holds up until until the dark day when focus groups found that the target audience of the show, like the kids who had convinced their parents to buy toys from it, uh, of little kids, really liked Slimer. And so it became Slimer and the real Ghostbusters and became much more juvenile. And I, as a discerning, mature youth of like, I don't know, nine years old or something, was very upset with this because, man, I liked Ghostbusters the way it was, all mature. Well, this this was a running thing in those cartoons, wasn't it? Taking the monster or the bad guy and making them a sidekick? It totally was, yeah. And so, yeah, the, the shows uh, that you were just referencing based on movies um, totally did that. So uh, Beetlejuice and Little Shop of Horrors both did that, both shows that I watched. Did you ever see either of those cartoons when you were a kid? No, and also I'm completely certain that everyone dies at the end of Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, I guess not the movie, but still, still, well, a I lot think, of like, people get eaten. They do. Uh, I think that's, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, Earth 616, and then the cartoon was like Little Shop of Horrors, Earth, uh, I don't know, 200, 500. That's where they all have beards. Anyway, it's just, it's an alternate continuity. It's fine. It's fine. Is Audrey 2 ambulatory in it? I don't remember. So for anybody unfamiliar, Little Shop of Horrors is about this guy named Seymour who is sort of a loser, and then he finds a uh, alien man-eating plant that helps him be more successful but also kills a lot of people. And yes, this turned into a children's cartoon where Seymour and his best friend Audrey 2 have adventures. The only way it could have been through more iterations of adaptation would be if it were Sweeney Todd. Seriously, Little Shop of Horrors started out as, I think, what, was it a Roger Corman horror movie? It's an old yeah. classic horror movie. Actually, Jack Nicholson's first motion picture appearance, um, if, if, if you want some extra bizarre trivia. And then there was, there was a Broadway show based on it, a musical, and then there was a movie based on a, the musical that changed the ending and wrote a new song, and then there was a cartoon based on that. Exactly, exactly. So it's a cartoon based on a movie, based on a musical, based on a movie, right? Does that, is that right? Vampires pretending to be people pretending to be vampires. How avant-garde. Uh, yeah, so there was that, and then there was Beetlejuice, which 
was great, actually. So, you know, obviously Beetlejuice in the Beetlejuice movie is a terrifying bad guy played by Michael Keaton. And in the cartoon, Lydia becomes the main character, Winona Ryder's character, and she's got this, like, sweet red spiderweb poncho thing that she wears. That I, It's hard to describe, but it looks awesome. And Beetlejuice is her best friend, and they have spooky adventures. And it was such a cool reinterpretation of the mythology that totally worked as a kid show. Like, it still had that kind of ghoulish Tim Burton feel to it, but in a way that wasn't uh, scary and was totally kid-appropriate. And I, I haven't watched it in years. Maybe it's awful, but I remember being so impressed with that show as a kid. I will take your word for it. It was great. If nothing else, just look up the character design for Lydia from it, because, like, I feel like everyone should dress like that. It, it, it's awesome. No, I've seen that. It's pretty great. She has kind of Pebbles Flintstone-y hair, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that cool spiderweb poncho. Yeah. Made by spiders? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. It was unclear. I don't know if they ever had an origin story for it. Um, but yeah, so you had that. You had Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, plural, as a cartoon. What? Yeah, I mean, Did... it was basically just the movies, but as a cartoon. Well, the first movie mainly. The second movie was way too weird for that. Did Did they try to make it pseudo-educational? Yes, because um, I, I think the deal was, at least with some shows, is you had to have it have educational value um, or else it would just be seen as a pure toy commercial and, like, that wasn't cool and you wouldn't get certain types of funding or something like that. I'm not real clear. So that's why you had those lessons at the end of your G.I. Joe episodes or Captain Planet. So I, I want to confess something, and this is this is one of those things that I feel like dates me, not only in terms of being an old, but also just in terms of, like, precise dates. I've never actually seen the real G.I. Joe PSAs, but I have seen all of those horrifying remixes of them. Oh, the ones done by Fensler Films back in the early 2000s? Yeah, the ones that came out w early early on in college, I think our first year of college. Yeah, the, hey kid, I'm a computer, etc. Um, right. Honestly, that's that's fine. I think that's the better way to see them. The educational ones were just so clearly done purely out of obligation. Sorry, I, I, I thought I had something snappy to say to that, but I don't. So so we've got sort of this this second era of, of miles kid tv programming what what comes after after the movie based stuff well so sort of during that i think was the really really big one which was ninja turtles i was obsessed with the teenage mutant ninja turtles in every possible form i had the original mirage comics from my dad i watched the cartoon like it was it, that, that cartoon was church to me like, that was all I cared about when i was i did a project i did a biography project when i was a kid in elementary school and I gave the same weight to Miles discovers the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that was an event on my timeline, to Miles' parents get divorced. Like, those were of equal weight to me at the time. I remember you describing the Ninja Turtles to me once as archetypes of masculinity. Uh, yeah, the four Ninja Turtles. I, and I don't even know if I would necessarily say masculinity, but they're, they're certainly archetypal. Uh, Michelangelo is my favorite. I used to go by Miles Angelo as a child. I had a birthday cake with that name on it and everything. It was a ninja-themed birthday party. Um, and by ninja-themed, I mean ninja by way of the Ninja Turtles, so uh, less so. Um, but yeah, okay, so I'm a, I'm a Miles Angelo. Uh, Jay, if you had to pick a Ninja Turtle, I think I know what your answer would be, but I feel like it's good to check in about every few years. Um, man, see, I always feel guilty doing this because I only have very, very limited frame of reference for them and, and context. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my, my, my superficial favorite is Donatello because he seems fairly chill and pleasant. Uh, he does machines, which is cool. When you say does machines, are we talking like Forge or are we talking like... Madison Jeffries. Like Madison yeah. Jeffries. <laughs> 
Uh, I'd imagine it depends on the interpretation. There have been a number of reboots, so probably some of each. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ninja Turtles, uh, I, I do want to give a shout out. I know we're talking about TV, but obviously we're a comics podcast. The comic book adaptation of the cartoon, it was called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures. It was by Archie Comics. And it was great. Like, it was starting with issue number 10, it just started doing its own stories instead of adapting episodes of the cartoon. And it got weird and surprisingly epic. Like, the Ninja Turtles were going from dimension to dimension in this big interstellar war of these demigods, like, fighting over these this artifact of power called the Turnstone. It was kind of rad. There's a lot of cheerfully irreverent Frank Miller parody in Ninja Turtles, in the comics at least, as I recall too, which is always a plus. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the origin of, of the entire thing back in the 80s from Eastman and Laird. Like, you have Splinter instead of Stick, you have the Foot Clan instead of the Hand. Um, it was a, a funny animal parody of the grim and gritty 80s comics, and it ended up becoming bigger than any of them. I love that. Okay, so Ninja Turtles were an era. How long did Ninja Turtles last? How long was, was that cartoon on the air? Uh, so the cartoon was on the air for, I want to say, 10 seasons, and... I grew out of it before it got toward the end, but I was just reading earlier today, actually, as I was thinking about this episode. Apparently, um, toward the end, it had a tonal shift and started to be more inspired by Batman the Animated Series in terms of, like, more of a dark style, uh, which I kind of want to see. That's referred to as the Red Sky Era because the sky was always drawn as – or colored as red. I don't know. I have no idea if it holds up. The original cartoon certainly doesn't even remotely hold up. It's terrible. But uh, I don't know. Maybe the later stuff is good. The segue to Batman um... – leads me to what I, I feel like is is kind of the glaring elephant in the room that we, we haven't really talked about yet here, and that's X-Men the Animated Series. Oh, it totally is. So we have so many listeners who we talk to for whom X-Men the Animated Series was their entry into X-Men. You know, it was out in the very early 90s, so for people of our rough generation, like, that was formative, and yeah, totally, 100%. Like, I was already kind of into X-Men. I'd been reading my dad's comics, but the cartoon was got what got me really, really into X-Men. Like, it was all we talked about on the playground. I still remember going to my friend Sam's house the day that season two premiered, because we'd been watching reruns of season one for what felt like an infinite amount of time. And so seeing, you know, Morph come back and Mr. Sinister show up, and it was the most mind-blowing goddamn thing. And that show... It wasn't as good as Batman the Animated Series, because basically nothing is as good as Batman the Animated Series, but it was fun. They crammed everything in there from X-Men, freaking everything from the comic. They made it vaguely coherent. It had the best theme song of all time. Listeners, you may have noticed our, our affection for it. Like, it was great. Until the last season, when they stopped getting as much budget, and then it was freaking awful. So terrible. So terrible. Yeah, man. Even the thing, even the adaptation decisions that I disagree with, like making the technarchy sexually dimorphic, they handled pretty well. They did, yeah. Um, it was, it, it kind of holds up. And I mean, really, if you want just an intro to as many X-Men concepts as possible in as short a time as possible, like, you could do a lot worse than the X-Men cartoon. It's true. So Batman the Animated Series, though. Batman the Animated Series was the gold standard, and I think kind of still is the gold standard for superhero cartoons. Yeah, it totally was. I watched it when I was growing up. I know you and I watched the entire thing together many, many years later as, as adults, and it's excellent. It completely holds up. The animation is gorgeous. The tone is consistent. The writing is clever. Like, I can't really say very many bad things about it. Yeah, and it really, really set the, the tone and the style for the entire DC animated universe for a really long time. And I think continues to set the bar for it today, even though it's it's 
developed outward into more styles and a wider range of shows. But yeah, that era that started with Batman and then there was like Superman and Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, like that era is just stellar. For for me, as a non-DC reader for the most part, that is my DC universe. That's what I want the DC universe to be. Likewise, very, very much. So I'm noticing a common thread among the things we've talked about so far, and that's that they're all animated. Were you watching anything that involved, you know, live people? Uh as time went on, like, first of, first off, it was pretty much Saturday morning cartoons, you know? I would get up stupid early on a Saturday, go to the room where the TV was, and just watch everything. There were lots of others, but these were the ones that stuck. But yeah, as I got older, um, totally. Like, so you mentioned Clarissa Explains It All earlier on Nickelodeon. Um, at the same time, there was Hey Dude, Salute Your Shorts, and The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And we have, let's talk about The Adventures of Pete and Pete, because that is such an important show for both of us. All right, so I want to give my my childhood experience with The Adventures of Pete and Pete first, because I feel like it's really emblematic of the show. I watched one episode of it when it was coming out entirely by accident, and pretty much forgot it until years and years, you know, decades later, when Miles and I were rewatching through the series, and I didn't think I'd seen it. And then this episode started, Spaced Geeks and Johnny Unitas, and I remembered almost every single plot point of it yeah yeah and i know it does that because i remember um i got back into it as as a grown-up like before we started watching it together because of these reviews these retro reviews that mara eakin was doing on the av club website and there were so many points where i'm like wait that that was a thing i watched i thought that was something i dreamed that was in a show that was in this show and that kept happening because that's the feel of the adventures of pete and pete it's this show about these two brothers named pete and they kind of live in the suburbs and the world is just bizarre but also very very normal i i think if you were to stick a genre on it the best match I've been able to come up with is suburban magical realism, because it's a type of magical realism that's very, very, very specific to a kind of American suburban 80s 80s and 90s childhood. Yeah, exactly. It's, in a way, it's the way the world feels when you are a kid, where, you know, it would logically follow that when you look in your new pair of underwear and it says inspected by number 34, that number 34 would be a specific guy who you could meet and, like, have over for dinner and stuff, which is uh, one of the episodes. It's just, it's it's the world by way of kid logic played, not played straight, because it is a very funny show, but just played with this sort of, of course this is the way things work logic. Yeah, um, it's it's a really fun show. It's a really brilliantly brilliantly made show um so miles and i got back into this in our 30s 20s i'm trying to remember this was it oh god when when was pete's fest was it it was like 2012 or 2013 i think it was 2013 but i think we started the project in 2012 so the first thing that we did after we watched through all of it we, we decided we wanted to do something with it and a couple other friends of ours who'd been really into the show were into the i think uh cory bing uh indigo clay and kel mcdonald um were on board with this from the start, and we decided we were going to make a tribute scene. We solicited work from a ton of people we knew. We put out a general call on the internet. It ended up enormous with, like, a fold-out centerfold. And in the process of doing this, we were contacted by the show's creators because suddenly there there was this whole renewed 
interest in in 90s Nickelodeon because of this AV Club series, which kind of set it off. And they were putting together reunion shows and they asked us if we'd like to organize one in Portland. And the two of us who had never done anything of that sort were like, sure, we'll take the case. Yeah. And somehow it worked out. Like, I'm not going to say it was perfect. We clearly only vaguely had an idea of what we were doing, but we got the show's two creators and four of the central actors to do two sold out shows at the Hollywood theater in Portland and like sold merch. And there was an art show. And I still have no clue how this thing wasn't a disaster, how it actually came together and worked out pretty okay. It was a lot of fun. And I should say too, that if, if you want to ever want to see the zine that spawned this, it's pay if or what you want on Gumroad. I'll we'll stick a link to that in the, the show notes for this at explain the X-Men.com. Yeah. And if you haven't seen the show, this is a weird parallel, but if you like X-Men, I think there's a decent chance you would like The Adventures of Pete and Pete. It's It's got a level of heart and genuine emotion and affection for its characters that I think would appeal to a lot of X-Men readers, despite it being a completely different genre. I'm going to say if you like Alan Davis Excalibur, that might be a better metric. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point. That's that's more of a parallel there. And, you know, whether it would work for you, I'd imagine it's kind of generational. Like, it worked for me as a kid because of the kid logic thing I mentioned. Coming back as an adult, you realize that it's also all about the impermanence of youth and, like, the concept of loss. So I think it would work for people who were adults in certain eras. I don't know if that's every generation that would, like, resonate with it the same way, but uh, probably some. Yeah, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal show. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that's also kind of, like you mentioned earlier, Jay, part of this not-so-secret origin of the podcast. We were looking for another project to do together after that. We've been talking to some friends about X-Men, and you'd been explaining X-Men on Twitter a little bit. And so we're like, oh, maybe we could do a podcast. I don't know. Those those seem cool, those podcast things. Yeah, we can just do it for a couple weeks or whatever, and if we get tired of it, just quit. Yeah, so... uh, Thank you, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, for uh, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, I guess. So that that that's still pretty early. That that lasted till really when we mostly when we were in elementary school. What were you watching in high school? So in high school, um, I was into science fiction more. I was also watching less television um, just because I was hanging out by myself more as like a a moody teenager and so playing more video games and reading more novels but i did still watch uh, a fair bit of tv the x-files was a real real big one for me me and some of my friends were just obsessed with the x-files because at the time that was one of the first shows that i had watched at least that was very serialized where you could you know follow this continually developing plot albeit only in the certain episodes that were directly related to it and so trying to unfolds that mystery with all of these spooky engaging characters like hiding behind the couch the way people used to with doctor who back in the day because the show was really scary for a young high schooler like me it was great that show also came of age alongside the internet which was really serendipitous timing for a conspiracy-based show Oh, yeah. No, it was great. Uh, Like, friends and I would be on AOL back in the day, just finding everything we could, hearing all the rumors and the theories. Like, not that I was super active on the internet, but, you know, enough to find that excitement. Uh, I I know that's another one that you and I watched together many years later, but when The X-Files was coming out, did you ever watch it? 
Again, I caught one episode by accident, and it was probably the worst possible episode to have watched out of context, which was Memoirs of a Cigarette Smoking Man. Oh yeah, that's continuity central right there. I mean, it's a cool episode, but it would have made no sense in isolation. It didn't, but that was kind of cool. But yeah, no, it, it definitely didn't leave me deeply interested in the show. Um, so, yeah, not really. Yeah, well, thankfully, we watched it as, as adults and came to the conclusion that John Doggett is the hero we need and the only one on that show who should really be trusted with a firearm or a badge. Yes. <laughs> Um, at the time, there were some other shows that uh, have certainly not uh, remained as well known. Um, some science fiction shows. There was Earth 2, which is an early uh, Tim Curry show. He plays one of the villains on it, which was really fun. Lasted for a season. Ended on a horrible cliffhanger that just felt like the show saying, you're going to cancel us? Fine, take this. Um, similarly, VR5 was about this woman uh, who could call somebody up on the phone and then hang the receiver of her phone up onto her dial-up modem because it was the 90s and I guess that was how you hacked into somebody's brain, which is what she did. She would hack into serial killers' brains to find, like, where they hid their victims and stuff. Uh, and this was all because her mom had gotten stuck on the early internet years before. It's the most 90s goddamn thing. I have no idea whether it was any good, but I was obsessed with this show until, like Earth 2, it ended on a cliffhanger when it was canceled. God damn it. Aw. Uh, there was also one called Mantis, or I should say m.a.n.t.i.s. because it stood for something. I don't remember what. Um, but it was about this this guy, uh, this technologist, who um, I think was paraplegic and made this exoskeleton and then decided that he was going to use it and the underwater base he also made for some reason to basically fight crime and kind of be a superhero. Um, it was notable in the 90s because it was a black main character and it was like a pure science fiction show and you didn't see a lot of that so that was kind of cool um it was probably awful but i don't know I, I watched it a lot and i liked it i don't know if anybody remembers it so that brings us to the era where we started watching tv together because we were living in the same places and the only tv show that i really remember watching in college not counting the time that your roommate made us watch a bunch of thundercats um, oh well that does not hold up is the simpsons yeah uh, i mean it's you know, what, what can you say about The Simpsons that hasn't already been said? It's it's become just like a central part of, of Western culture at this point. But yeah, I remember we would get together in the dorm every whatever day it came on, and we would push couches together and like snuggle with our friends while watching The Simpsons. And that was just part of the week. And it was it was comfort food, you know? I remember why we started doing that too, which is that there were too many of us to fit on the couches normally, but you can fit more people on two couches if they're pushed together like a nest than you can if they're, you know, just being normal couches. Oh, man. Do you remember back in years that were not this one when you could, like, be in physical proximity with people? That was that was nice. Heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, but there was that. Oh, you know, that actually reminds me, speaking of cartoons that were important to us growing up and college, Daria, because I remember we watched the Daria series finale when we were in college, and it was this super emotional experience because so many of us had grown up on it. Oh, shit, yeah. I watched that religiously in high school. I'd forgotten that completely. And then I got it on DVD years later, and it's really, really bleak. Like, I I marathon watched a lot of it, and it was it was just sort of an existential spiral. It was, yeah. Like, it seemed to be... And I'm gonna I'm gonna totally generalize here, but it seemed to be very much a Generation X show, like the actual generation, not the team of of mutants, as opposed to a millennial show, because we're both technically 
uh, on the older end of millennials. No, because Dario was about the same age as us in the show when it was coming out. And it was made by Gen- Generation X folks. But we're also cusp millennials. Like we are the we are we are in the two year period that gets categorized variously as the very, very start of millennials or the very end of Generation X. And that I think gets summed up best as the Oregon Trail generation because it's one that's defined by being early transplants to digital, you know, digital stuff, but not being quite digital native in the ways that younger millennials are. And yeah, and I think I think Daria fits pretty well in that specific space. I would agree, yeah. And uh, I don't know. It was a show that I always wanted to see more of. I think I um, I initially discounted it when I was a kid because I knew it was a spinoff of Beavis and Butthead, which I despised. Like, don't get me wrong. Mike Judge does good work sometimes. I'm told the show was brilliant in its own way. But to me, the characters on Beavis and Butthead, what I mainly knew of them were that the bullies who picked on me quoted Beavis and Butthead a lot. So I hated Beavis and Butthead. Valid. And you mentioned wanting to see more of it. And interestingly, this is actually a show that is is getting a much, much delayed spinoff. Um, or at least I've heard about uh, Jody, who is one of the characters from the original series. Yeah, yeah, I'm really curious about that. Like, we live in an era of sequels and reboots and, and resurgences. And Badari is not something I ever expected to be revisited, simply because it, it seemed so much of its time. It was such a 90s show. On the other hand, it's now old enough to have some degree of retro cachet, and the people who were into it when it was coming out are old enough to be in positions where they can, you know, have some degree of production power. There's that, yeah. I I don't know how to feel about that, because it, it kind of makes me think of how, with Marvel and DC Comics, you know, in the 90s, I think, to start, you would have people who grew up on X-Men or Justice League or whatever uh, now working on it. And often what you see there is creators just bringing back the old status quo that they're used to and and that can lead to those uh rubber band status quo situations where things just go back to the way they used to be on the other hand she-ra on the other hand she-ra yeah or i mean from what i understand uh the my little pony show which i've heard is kind of brilliant even if its fandom has become infamous it's really racist oh well that's disappointing to hear god damn it my little pony don't be racist I think they may have addressed it somewhat later. I've only seen the very early parts of it from ages and ages and ages ago. But, yeah. Oh, well, uh, I wish that was not the case, and I hope it got better. I hope everything gets better in the world. That's that's a pretty good good thing to shoot for. (laughs) So I think those were the... The basic basics for me, I mean, you know, we we watched stuff in college, usually on DVD because we didn't have television, uh, Buffy and Angel and all the Joss Whedon stuff and uh, a lot of anime. Yeah, it's been, let's see, we graduated in 2004. It's been 16 years since I lived somewhere with a television that got channels. Yeah, and of course these days, I mean, you don't really need it. Like so many people have cut the cord, are, are just streaming. But yeah, back then it was just friends trading DVDs around or sometimes even VHS tapes. I mean, I actually hooked my somehow still functioning VCR up recently to watch a housemate's uh, old favorite kids movie. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't know how that thing still works. 
Um, but so to go way back, Jay, you were talking about watching stuff with your parents that were not exactly kids shows. Do you have any highlights that you remember? Like I know you've mentioned the McNeil-Lear uh, News McNeil Hour. McNeil-Lear News Hour, yeah, which was, was, you know, which was of course a classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we watched we watched a lot of that. We watched a lot of Voyager. Voyager was the only Star Trek series that I remember watching the very beginning of as it was coming out. Um, and it's yeah, it's got it's a massively flawed series, but it's also awesome. And it was the first series with a female captain, and Kate Mulgrew is so great. Yeah, yeah, she's been in a ton of stuff. Wasn't she on Orange Is the New Black not too long ago? Yes, remember- and she's amazing. Oh, yay, Kate Mulgrew. Keep on kicking ass. Um, also, did... she's on Gargoyles, which I had never seen until uh, T and I started watching it fairly recently. We only watched a couple episodes because the world was in the middle of exploding at the time. Oh, Gargoyles. Yeah, I, that was always a show I wanted to watch, but uh, didn't really, I don't know if I just didn't get the channel it was on or what. But yeah, from what I understand, that has an unbelievably stacked voice cast, right? Yeah, and also specifically unbelievably stacked with Star Trek The Next Generation and Voyager actors. I mean, you could do a lot worse. That's that's kind of awesome. It is. It's a really neat show from the bits of it that I've seen. I also know a really large number of, of artists and of cartoonists who grew up watching it and, and for whom the character designs on it and the, the art were, was, was really a formative thing. That's legit, yeah. Yeah, that was one of those shows that I would just catch occasionally at friends' houses or whatever and just wonder what, what I was missing. Which, oh, that that reminds me. Two shows, the Pirates of Darkwater, similar situation. I would just catch bitch, catch uh, catch bits and pieces and be intrigued. And this old one that I think was called Spartacus and the Sun Beneath the Sea. Did I ever tell you about that one, Jay? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it was like this old French cartoon, and there were singing aardvarks and these kids who got trapped in this underground kingdom, and like Stonehenge was there, and there was this guy with a gauntlet that shot arrows, and it's it just. In retrospect, kind of seems like a fever dream, and I suspect the show probably had that feel in general. Like, French animation just was something I was not prepared for. I think it was French. Maybe European somewhere. I don't know. I was a kid. I didn't know where things were from. But, uh, yeah. I know the Smurfs are from Belgium. I I think they're called the sh- the, the Strumpfs. In... Strumpfs, yeah. That's that's a great name. It's hard to say. Yes. I guess it's, it's easier to say if you're, you know, Strumpf. from Belgian, Belgium. It's not that hard to say. Oh, okay, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're not great at pronunciation. We're working on it. Sorry, everyone. I mean, I learned to pronounce Strumpf in Belgium, and it's pretty much Strumpf. Wait, like, when you when you went to Belgium, was did this come up? Yeah. So Belgium is the center of European comics and cartoons to some ex- extent. But they've got, like, the, the Smurfs are a huge cultural phenomenon there. That is really hard to imagine. I mean, awesome, but wow. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Okay. Uh, speaking of those Christmas specials we were talking about, the Smurfs one, as I recall, that we watched the same year that we watched the Ghostbusters one, involves them fighting Satan. It was strange. I don't remember that at all. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, the Gargamel's working with with her again. I don't know, they're occultists anyway, is the point. And they, they're summoning, like, this demon, and the Smurfs have to fix it, I think? Or maybe that was a fever dream? I'm pretty sure the Smurfs fight Satan in one Christmas special at one point. Pretty sure. Sure. Sounds plausible to me. Or maybe it was Mephisto or Satanish or, you know, you get a lot of options. I'm just saying. 
I'm pretty sure that the Smurfs don't exist canonically in the Marvel Universe. And I realize, like, 200 people are going to send me that one cartoon of Mystique. But, um... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Marvel no, we have do... vamps for that. We do. Marvel did do a bunch of comics based on Saturday morning cartoons. Like, I remember they had a Heathcliff uh, comic. Um, they had the licenses for, like, He-Man, for Bucky O'Hare, which was actually had really good toys, uh, from what I recall as a kid. Like, Marvel used to do everything license-wise, kind of like they are these days, actually, now that Disney owns them and they're buying the world bit by bit. Oof. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... The only other thing that I had on my list that I wanted to talk about cartoon-wise... We touched on cartoons based on movies where you kind of wonder what the hell they were thinking adaptation-wise. And I think the one at the very pinnacle of that list, even beyond Little Shop of Horrors in terms of what are you thinking, was a cartoon called The Toxic Crusaders, which had an action figure line. It was geared toward, toward small children, based on an incredibly violent, nihilistic series of movies by Troma. Like, I remember watching one of the movies when I was staying at my grandmother's house because I'm like, hey, I like this Toxic Crusader show. It's this environmental, fun, silly show. And then I'm watching the movie and, like, the main character is crushing somebody's skull between his hands and the guy's eyeballs are popping out. My grandmother turned it off because I was too young to watch it, which, yes, I, I in fact was. But how would you see this horrifying movie by a studio known for doing horrifying and terrible things and decide, yep, that is our million-dollar idea for a children's television show and action figure line. What I really want to know is how they got an entire series worth of content out of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, right, because there was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. That show, that cartoon had such a deep, complex mythology. Like, when you're a kid, it's really hard to follow things in order, and they used to play episodes out of order all the time anyway. But it was fascinating. Like, there was this girl, but she was really a tomato, even though she was also a girl. And, like, all the joke characters from the movies suddenly had these backstories, and there was infighting among the killer tomatoes that were the villains. I'm going to need a few minutes to process this. Or maybe a couple of seasons. I don't know if that ever uh, got re-released. I mean, I remember it as being an important formative part of my childhood, but uh, I don't know how many other people do. I remember discovering that it existed and being surprised by that, but I don't think I ever got any further. Man, we were going to make this a more general about television episode, but I, I feel like we're 45 minutes in and we should maybe just sort of blink and say, okay, yeah, this is this is animation. This is This is the animation episode. I guess it is. Yeah, like, we talked a little bit about live-action stuff, but I don't know. Also, I mean, when I talk about the recent shows I've watched and the things I watched obsessively as they were coming out and the things I've really enjoyed recently, I still end up with a lot of animation. I mean, I remember watching Avatar The Last Airbender in Portland and then Legend of Korra um, and just rewatched both of those recently. She-Ra is amazing. There's, there's been this, this whole incredible modern wave of animation recently but I gotta say, the animated show that's come out recently-ish that I loved the most and that I'm super excited to hear has been uncancelled is Tuca and Birdie. Yeah! I completely agree. Tuca and Birdie, uh, I guess it was on Netflix and now it'll be on some other thing. It's phenomenal. It's it's profane and heartfelt and has bird breasts everywhere and is about female friendship and like serious stuff and is uh, it's wonderful it is a wonderful goddamn show and hearing that it was uncancelled was such good news it is and and it's 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 
from Lisa Hanawalt, who worked extensively and I think was a, a lead designer on, on BoJack Horseman, but is also just a phenomenal cartoonist and animator and writer. And it's fun. It's fun in ways that cartoons with an adult target audience rarely get to be because they're so busy proving that they're, you know, art and moody and subversive by being depressing. And no, Tuca and Birdie is substantial, but it's also just fun and weird. Real weird. Gloriously weird. Uh, yeah, it, it's great. That was a that has been a highlight recently. And God, I mean, we really are living in a an animation just renaissance. Like, there's so much amazing stuff. Steven Universe, I freaking loved. That has such a special place in my heart. Gravity Falls was delightful. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't believe I forgot Gravity Falls. I love Gravity Falls. Over the Garden Wall. Oh, yeah, Over the Garden Wall. That was incredible. Um, That's become kind of a a fall tradition just to watch that on ideally the uh, autumnal equinox every year. just It feels like fall in a way that nothing else does. We usually shoot for closer to Halloween, but yeah. That totally fits as well, yeah. And I don't know, like, you know, I mean, okay, we're talking animation. We're an X-Men podcast. We talked about the animated series, but that's not the only X-Men animation that there's been, of course. You're right. There's also Pride of the X-Men. There's also Pride of the X-Men. Oh, God, that one episode pilot with the amazing opening theme and the very strange lineup as much as I liked seeing Dazzler actually do something. Well, there's also, of course, X-Men Evolution and Wolverine and the X-Men. X-Men Evolution is a show that came out a little late for either of us to watch as it was coming out, but I've at least seen all of it since um, and should really get back to recapping it one of these days. It'll happen. It'll happen someday. Wolverine and the X-Men. I did. Wolverine and the X-Men ran for one season. It was set in the same universe as or at least parallel to Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, another wonderful show that died too soon and it was phenomenal it was so so good it was the x-men cartoon that i started watching exclusively because nolan north was playing cyclops in it and it was a really really good intersection of your favorite voice actor and favorite character and then just got utterly utterly into yeah i mean i'm gonna go ahead and say i think it is it okay this is subjective of course but is it the best on-screen depiction of the X-Men? I do really love the Generation X made-for-TV movie. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, Troll. that's a lie. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I do not lie. I mean, I, do, I love it, but for the wrong reasons. Right. <laughs> God. I don't know. It might be. I think it just captures the the spirit of X-Men damn near perfectly. Like, if you're going to go for movies, I know it's a controversial choice, but I'll say that I think Days of Future Past feels the most X-Men to me, as much as it's very flawed in some ways. But I think the cartoon does that X-Men feeling better. I mean, and part of that's that it has more room to work. You know, it's got, like, a full season of television instead of just a couple hours to cram everything into. But it feels like X-Men, and it doesn't feel like just recapping the same old stuff, like, you know, origin stories of various characters. It... It takes place when the X-Men have been established for quite a while, and so there's all this backstory that's referenced, but a plot that feels new. I think that's a great note to wrap it up on, so I will say we will be back next week with Jay and Miles explaining the X-Men, looking at X-Men Prime, but um, this is Hawk Talk, which is something else. I'm very tired.
<laughs> entirely reasonable. Uh, but yes, listeners, um, thanks for sticking with us. Um, thanks for uh, being okay with our unedited, not very prepared at all Hawk Talk episodes. We hope you have found this engaging, if not necessarily educational. And we hope that when you see Hawks in nature, you remember Wolverine and the X-Men is a great cartoon. It surely is. All right, take care. We'll talk to you soon.